The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom! An official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com it. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Why did you say it like that? I don't know how I said it. I, I'll leave it in. What did I say? I don't know. I have a, I have a tickle. Is I it? have a tickle. There's a gay cold going around. <laughs> there really was. There was a gay pride cold. But you are COVID negative. Many times. Many, many tests ever <laughs> since. But uh... On today's show, the White House calls out Facebook for spreading misinformation about vaccines. Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz. Talks to Tommy and me about climate change, immigration, voting rights, and his tweeting habit. And later, we answer a few of your questions. Uh, let's get right to the news. The Delta variant of COVID-19 is currently tearing through unvaccinated populations around the world. And here in the United States, where about 43% of eligible Americans still haven't gotten their first shot, people's refusal to get vaccinated is leading to more hospitalizations, more deaths, and the return of restrictions in places like here in Los Angeles, where masks are once again required for public indoor settings. The Biden administration is now saying that one reason people aren't getting their shots is because of the misinformation being spread on social media platforms like Facebook. We heard it from White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, who told Kara Swisher a few weeks ago that unvaccinated focus groups keep repeating vaccine misinformation that they say they saw on Facebook. Uh, we heard it on Thursday from Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who issued the first public health advisory of his tenure on health misinformation. We heard it on Friday from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, and we heard it from President Biden himself in response to a reporter's question on the topic. Here are some clips of the last three people I mentioned. My worry is that uh, all this is misinformation that's floating around. It's having a real cost that can be measured in lives lost, and that is just tragic. There's about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms. All of them remain active on Facebook, despite some even being banned on other platforms, including Facebook, ones that Facebook owns. What's your message to platforms like Facebook? They're killing people. I mean, it really, they really, look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated. And, that, and, they're, and they're killing people. So Facebook responded in a, a rather whiny blog post that their data shows 85% of U.S. Facebook users have been or want to be vaccinated. 
They said they've removed over 18 million instances of COVID-19 misinformation since the pandemic began, and they've prohibited the purchase of ads that include false information about vaccines. Biden then clarified his remarks this morning, Monday morning, saying, quote, Facebook isn't killing people. My hope is that they would do something about the misinformation. That's what I meant. Tommy, said Facebook isn't killing people. Mark Zuckerberg is killing <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, just to be more specific, I want to clarify my comments. Mark and Cheryl themselves are out there killing yeah, people. Yeah, is yeah, it yeah. Co- no, no, COVID is killing people. Facebook is spreading COVID. <laughs> Tommy, how much blame do you think Facebook deserves here? I mean, some part of it. I, I think I, th- I found the Facebook response to be shockingly childish. They tried to throw it into a political frame and suggest this was about meeting a political goal. When I think, uh, you know, it's about saving lives and getting people good information, uh, you know, Before COVID existed, the World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. So it's not a new problem because for years, Facebook, Twitter, other social media sites have allowed vaccine misinformation to spread. They also helped it spread. If you joined like a natural parenting group, you would often get algorithmically shown uh, a suggestion that you join an anti-vaccine group. Right. So they've helped these groups grow. They've helped them organize. This is a long term problem. It's not just specific to COVID now. So it's hard to it's hard to really delineate like what their share of the blame is. But it's notable that they're happy to offer you reams and reams of information about all the ways they're helping people get good information. And when you ask them to provide information about who is seeing vaccine misinformation on their site, they refuse to uh, present any data or give it to researchers or do anything. So, you know, clearly, like you're hearing anecdotally in in polling focus groups that people are getting bad info and getting scared about the vaccine on Facebook. Love it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they've spent a very long time kind of priming the the conspiratorial pump. Um, That's outright misinformation and falsehoods, but that's also just sort of encouraging conspiratorial communities to form on a host of different issues and to elevate some of the most conspiratorial thinkers in our politics, mostly from the right wing. And there is plenty of misinformation they have taken down. But when you go and look at what stays up, no, it is it is sometimes hard to identify a brazen lie. But just asking questions, just sowing misinformation, just sharing misleading statistics like that's that is the kind of um, that is the like bread and butter of countless conspiracy theorists. And to Facebook's and to Facebook's point, that lives on Facebook, that lives off Facebook. It's a huge societal problem, but Facebook is a massive part of how people get and share information. And so it is a big problem on Facebook. Facebook talks about the billions and billions of of pieces of positive, good information people have received. To Tommy's point, uh, they will never tell you the other half of that, of, of that equation. They know how many uh, pieces of misinformation they've taken down. They could very easily tell us how many people saw it before that happened, but they won't. Yeah. So one thing we know for sure is that the country is awash in misinformation about vaccines, right? Um, One in five Americans, according to a YouGov poll, believe that it's definitely true or probably true that there's a microchip inside the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, 30 to 44 year olds were the most likely age group to believe that. So this is not something, love it, that we can just blame on the baby boomers, which I know you always love to do. Look, uh, a millennial is just a baby boomer waiting to happen. <laughs> this is the reality One in five, of the situation. 20% think there's a fucking microchip in the COVID vaccine. So we yeah. know the misinformation exists. And obviously, Facebook is one of the you know biggest, the biggest social media platform in the world, right? Um, on Friday, the day this all went down, the top Facebook post about vaccines in the United States was from Marjorie Taylor Greene falsely stating that the vaccines are not FDA approved. That was the number one post on Friday, the day all this went down, and then Facebook started complaining about it. So, I mean, it's true, like, Facebook is the sort of weapon of choice, but the ammo comes from 
Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens, Republican politicians. Donald Trump is now flirting with it over the weekend. He had a statement, you know, saying maybe people aren't taking it because they don't trust Joe Biden, you know, so he's he's dipping into it, too. But Facebook certainly helps spread it. Here's one thing I think that is indisputable is that their response is incoherent. So Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Democrat, uh, big time anti-vaxxer, he's banned on Instagram, but he's not banned on Facebook. How does that make sense? Right. How does that work? Maybe he like broke the terms of service on IG, but not Facebook, but seemingly like you could rationally decide, okay, this guy's a bad actor spreading harmful information. We should take him off the platform. And you know, there was a study that, that labeled these folks the disinformation dozen that the White House cited that found that 65% of anti-vax content comes from 12 people. They looked at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And nine of these 12 are still on all of these platforms. Mm. So, you know, they've they've... Facebook's approach to these issues has evolved over time. They started in the lazy Silicon Valley libertarian place of like, we believe in free speech. We believe, you know, it's bullshit. It's just like, that's the easiest thing for the Mark Zuckerberg of the world to say to uh, rationalize and defend a, a hands-off approach. Over time, they started taking people off like Alex Jones, you know, folks like that. And they've clamped down harder and harder and harder on disinformation. But I think until uh, October of this year, they allowed anti-vaccine paid advertisements. Right. They were getting yeah, money. In, I mentioned that. It was just in October. You're right. Like, that they started doing that. And there's still exemptions in that ban for, for legislation. So, you know, I'm not saying this is an easy issue, but like it's completely incoherent when you look at their response. Well, so you said like one one easy step is at the very least banning people or, or posts, misinformation posts from folks who are already banned on other Facebook-owned platforms. That's, an, that's low-hanging fruit. What more could Facebook and other social media platforms be doing in general to combat misinformation about the vaccines love it well one one step that facebook refuses to take is like the only information we get like kind of overview of what people are seeing is from facebook and because facebook has a communication strategy to be completely disingenuous like obtuse and sleazy through virtually all of their communications for years nobody trusts what they put out nobody believes it's giving them a full picture and and we know that they're sort of cherry picking the information that best suits their argument you know they'll they'll point out all the billions of of uh, they'll they'll point out all the misinformation they take down uh, they don't tell us how much of it has reached people for example and so there's this push to allow researchers access to facebook's information, its data, its back end to kind of do research on the ways in which misinformation spreads and promulgates through their platform and off their platform. And they obviously do not see it in their interest to allow this to happen. But I would argue that if they genuinely believe they want to create this safe and productive place for community, they should want this transparency. They should want to uh, be intellectually honest and rigorous and bring these kinds of outside experts in in a way that's anonymized, that is a way that keeps private information private, but that will uh, give them, I think, some credibility uh, and some genuine sort of goodwill in the fight to make a safer community that a huge proportion of the planet uses. So more transparency. The White House has called on them to uh, be more transparent as well. Tommy, anything else? I think giving independent researchers access to their data is the biggest thing they need to do as well. I mean, I, like, it just speaks to the fundamental problem with this this company is, like, they say trust us all the time. And when you think back to all the, you know, sort of, like, hat-in-hand Mark Zuckerberg apologies that have happened along the way, starting with him suggesting that uh, it's crazy to think that fake news could have had an impact on the 2016 election. They've just given us time and time again reason not to trust what they say. So, you know, I, I understand that these are not easy questions. Um, the idea of, of working with the government raises First Amendment issues as well. But like to your point, Lovett, you, you would think you would want a platform 
where videos like the pandemic video that essentially accused Dr. Fauci of creating the coronavirus didn't spread like wildfire to millions of people for a week before you take it down. Like, get some folks on top of this. And again, you know, YouTube is at fault there too, right? Oh, like, absolutely. it's not just YouTube, Facebook. Twitter, this should go beyond Facebook. Of course. So, you know, the other point that uh, Jen Saki mentioned in her press briefing is that Facebook has the ability to tweak their algorithm to promote credible sources of information over less credible sources. They haven't done that yet. How do we know they can do that? Well, there's the story of the, quote, nicer news feed after the 2020 election. In the days after the election, Facebook employees convinced Mark Zuckerberg to change the algorithm so that it gave more weight and visibility to publishers with high news ecosystem quality or NEQ scores, which are in Facebook a secret internal ranking uh, that F- that Facebook assigns to news publishers based on the credibility of their stories. And in the days after the election, when they did that, CNN, New York Times, NPR became more highly visible posts than partisan sites like Breitbart or Occupy Democrats. And so like and there was this big story like, like we had a nicer news feed and all the employees were like, are we going to have this forever now? And then a couple of weeks after the election, after the insurrection, after everything, when you know Joe Biden gets inaugurated, they just shut it off. <laughs> they had, they could have done it. <laughs> I know. And look, and they, and they clamped down on anti-vaccine information in 2019 after there was a giant measles outbreak, uh, a disease that we Tol- basically yeah. eradicated in, in California uh, that led to like 80 something kids dying. They have, you know, it's announced new policies limiting the spread uh, of groups that give bad health advice or organize, you know, the militias with ties to violence. So along the way, they keep taking these steps. The challenge is like their response seems to be, okay, but we've helped so many people find authoritative information by steering them there. But if you create a community where for a decade, anti-vaxxers, QAnon, Alex Jones, just like shred everyone's faith in institutions. And then you have a big tech company handing you over to the CDC for the information about the groups and people they've just been attacking. Like, it's, it's not going to work. The damage is done. Yeah. It's, um, it's also like they constantly try to turn their scale from like a liability into a strength. And we just shouldn't rhetorically and just allow that message just to work on us. Like if a supermarket had um, a bunch of different kinds of cereal that were deadly, and that if you had a single bite of it, you would fall down and die. Mm-hmm. Uh, we not, would not accept. Not magic as, spoon. We would not accept no. as an argument from Stop and Shop that they've removed almost ninety percent of the deadly boxes of cereal. We would say, hold on a second. There's a deeper problem here. How is this cereal getting on your shelves? What brands are responsible? What are you doing to fix it? And so, only in you know, we don't allow buildings to get so big that parts of it can fall down. We we don't allow companies to get so big that their products can kill a certain percentage of their people. Well, sometimes we do, to be honest. I was going to say, well, yeah, I think we do both of those Sometimes things, we do those. Yeah. But, but like, we don't accept it. We don't accept it. And okay. so we should not allow Facebook to use its scale as a defense. It's not a defense. You built this giant fucking conglomerate, this giant monstrosity. You have to figure out how to govern it. It's not our fault you got so big. Oh, and one more thing. You know, I, I, I mentioned earlier about Trump and the statement. What do we think about him now sort of dipping his toe into the... Uh, I mean, he actually has done it a couple times now, but... It was his vaccine. He likes to take credit for the vaccines being developed under his watch. Now he's saying, oh, people aren't getting them because because they don't trust Joe Biden and they think the election was stolen. It was sort of a mishmash of a dumb statement. But I mean, you're, you're right that this is not a new position for him. It's more of a return to form. You know, there was this infamous study from the late 90s called the Wakefield study that suggested that measles, mumps and rubella vaccines caused autism. That study has been retracted. Uh, subsequent studies have found it, it was completely wrong, but it has been enormously damaging and sort of is the is the root of a lot of the anti-vaxxer sentiment you see. Trump, as recently as 2012, 2014, was tweeting that kids shouldn't get vaccines because it causes autism. So if he's now going back to a position where he's raising concerns about vaccines and getting vaccinated, 
it would be his previous position that he, you know, kind of grudgingly walked back from once he got into the White House. I mean, thank God, thank God he wants to take credit for the vaccine on some level, because if he didn't, it's very clear he'd be completely anti-vax. He'd be right there with Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Tucker Carlson right now. That's where his heart is. Yeah. But of course, he wants credit for the vaccine. He is vaccinated. So I think we have this like this statement from him is actually just punditry. Right. He's not saying he's not saying that the mistrust is correct. He's saying, look at what Biden's causing because of his for all the reasons he wants to, uh, uh, you know, lay blame at Biden's feet. But he's not actually crossing the threshold yet. Yeah. And the, but, you know, Donald Trump Jr., if you look at his Instagram, which for some reason I do, he posts act anti-vaccine stuff all the time. Like recently he posts uh, like a photo of a woman with a baby arm growing out of her head that said something about uh, raise your hand if you got the vaccine. Right. It's all like supposed to be for the yucks, memes, LOL stuff, but it's like Edgelord, Donald Trump Jr. Exactly. All right. Facebook bad. Let's turn to the Biden White House. Um, They they aren't really known for even hitting Republicans or right wing media all that hard. Why do you think they decided to step out on uh, on Facebook? I mean, I, I I think that I talked to some folks there over the weekend who said that the Facebook. I'm sorry, did you do some reporting? Goddamn right, I did. You know, I had like a newsies hat this? on. I got out my typewriter. Um, they said that the Facebook's response after Vivek's report went out was just unacceptable, and it just seemed like they were going to drag their feet again. And, and you know, then you, you, the White House is out there saying, "Hey, we really need your help with disinformation and hygiene on your platform." And instead of hearing about Facebook launching some new initiative to, to get anti-vax info off their platform. You read stories in the New York Times by people like Kevin Roos about how they might get rid of CrowdTangle, which is the only tool we have to really understand how uh, people are engaging with with posts on platform, like which which what posts are getting viewed the most. It's an internal Facebook entity that they might just shut down because it's creating a PR headache for them. Because they don't like seeing Kevin Roos's posts about the top 10 Facebooks yeah, being exactly. like Bungino, 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 an AP story about Benjibiro. the defeating of a of a, of a sex trafficking ring because QAnon latched onto it, Ben Shapiro, Ben yep, Shapiro, yep, Ben Shapiro. Yep. Yeah, it does seem like look, the, the Biden folks were just, they're frustrated, right? And I'm sure President Biden's comment, I don't even know if his comment was planned about it's killing people. I'm sure he's frustrated because they're, you know, the vaccination campaign has stalled a bit over the last month and and they're seeing the delta variant spread and i think going public with this was the only way they knew how to do it as opposed to just like quietly talking to facebook behind the scenes you yeah know? it just comes on the heels of like constant dumb decision making by facebook like they didn't ban holocaust denial until october of 2020 that was his mark zuckerberg's official position was that he thought it should be on the platform so people should know it know it's out there i love guess. it it's worse than that he said i don't think that they're intentionally getting it wrong when asked about people who post holocaust denial. like yes they are man yeah it seems like you might be off on that there, there's a long history of uh, uh intentionally posting anti-semitic stuff they wouldn't fact check political ads in the 2020 campaign so i imagine there's just an accumulating frustration at the, the idiocy i just want to say also that that i appreciate this sort of <laughs> Biden saying they're killing people. It launched this conversation. Then Biden walked it back. It's kind of like a reverse Trump because what used to happen is Trump would go out and say something kind of kind of that implied something so beyond the pale. It kind of repulsed most human beings. Then a few of his most devoted people would go out there and say he didn't mean it. And then on Monday, he would say it explicitly and they'd all be embarrassed. This is the <laughs> yeah. reverse of that. Reverse, Biden says yeah. Biden says Facebook is killing people. I don't think they are. A bunch of people defend him and then he walks it back. He like deescalates. Um, yeah, that's all. That's what's that's one of the many differences um, <laughs> among so many differences. Yes. Biden team is trying a lot of different strategies to get more people vaccinated. They're calling out misinformation on Facebook. They've got community leaders going door to door. They've got Olivia Rodrigo at the White House. Um, who do they still need to reach and persuade to get a shot? And, and what else do you think they should try at this point? 
I mean, the, one in five Americans believes there's a microchip in your COVID vaccine, right? You mentioned that earlier. Same poll found that 40% of the country thinks the threat of COVID was exaggerated for political purposes, including 85% of the unvaccinated. So I, I think, you know, the microchip crew, probably going to be a tough get. Tough, tough sell for the microchip crew. There are a bunch of people in this country who I think have understandable questions or concerns. They look at the Tuskegee experiments where, you know, black men were given syphilis and and not treated by the government. Horrible part of our history. You can imagine why that would create uh, hesitation in in the black community. There are young people who are just confused about whether or not they need it. And they've heard uh, news stories about the side effects that are scary. There's pregnant women, there's young people, right? There's, There's all kinds of Different groups who I think have legitimate questions, concerns, have seen something disconcerting. Those are all folks that are reachable. I think the like hardcore QAnon anti-vaxxers, we're never going to reach them. I feel like you you have to separate anti-vaxxers from vaccine hesitant and vaccine skeptical. And we should probably stop saying anti-vax so much because that creates an identity and we don't want to we don't want to affiliate people who have concerns rightly or wrongly with people that will never get it and yeah, are kind of I always try to say hesitant hesitant um and then so Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll of people who got the vaccine people who were hesitant to get the vaccine and they looked at the 21% of adults who are now vaccinated after saying in January that they planned on waiting would only get it if required or would definitely not get it and so they looked at what changed their mind one fourth said it was seeing others, especially friends and family, get vaccinated. 17% were persuaded by a family member, 10% by a doctor or healthcare provider, and then by close friends, coworkers, and classmates. And many of those who said they were persuaded after talking to their own doctor mentioned their doctor encouraging them due to their own or a family member's medical condition. So trying to protect themselves or their family. And then the other factor was the easing of restrictions on vaccinated people. They decided to get it because they could get back to normal life. One of the respondents just wanted to go to the Bahamas. And so we should not underestimate the power of vaccine mandates. Well, and you'll see a lot of people in L.A. have responded to the mask mandate that returned here by saying, well, what's the point of getting the vaccine? I thought if I got the vaccine, I didn't have to wear a mask anymore. So that is one potential consequence of that. (sighs) Yeah. And look, back to the sort of Mark Zuckerberg being completely naive about why people post Holocaust denial. The the other thing I think that they don't seem to get is, you know, according to the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which put out this disinfo dozen report about these super spreaders of bad information about vaccines, they have found that anti-vaccine activists specifically target black communities uh, and, and push this stuff on them, knowing the really dark history in our country. And that's why it has to be an active campaign to counter that misinformation or remove it with good information, right? Because there's a lot of people for whom this is a thing they are very passionate about. They think about, talk about it, organize it around it all day. And the rest of us just get vaccinated at some point in our lives and move on with our lives. And there's no countering the disinformation happening. There's just a big void. So uh, the same poll that Lovett cited, the Kaiser poll uh, in June of 2021, last month, 65 percent in that in that poll said that they had already received at least one dose. We know it's a good poll because at the time in June, it was about 65 percent, according to the CDC as well. 14 percent said definitely not. Uh, That's the microchip crew. 10 percent said we're going to wait and see. And then 6 percent said they'll only do it if required. So that 10 percent and 6 percent is like basically who we're talking to. There's three things you can do right to get people to get a vaccine. There's persuasion, incentives and mandates. Persuasion is what you guys have been talking about. The other persuasion strategy that I think we haven't used yet, it'd be interesting to see sort of um, previously vaccine hesitant people who got the vaccine record testimonials, video testimonials and ads and start running ads with people say, I didn't know if I wanted to get it. And then my my father convinced me or my mother convinced me or my sibling, you know, and see how that goes. Um, incentives we've seen, we've seen the lotteries in different states, right? 
I do think, you know, everyone's very concerned about mandates. We've had mandates on a state and local level for vaccines forever in our history. Um, in, in France, Macron, the president of France, announced on Monday that proof of vaccination or a negative test would soon be needed to access public events, restaurants, movies and airports. Since then, in just 48 hours after his announcement, more than 2.2 million uh, French people booked vaccination appointments. So I, I really, you know, look, they are they are legal, right? In March, um, a, a federal court upheld an employer's vaccination mandate. Uh, it was a hospital system uh, in Texas. A federal judge held it there. The Supreme Court has upheld local and state vac- uh, mandates for schools for a hundred years now. Um, once the FDA offers a full approval. Instead of just emergency use authorization, they'll be on even firmer legal ground, but already employers can do this. And we know that one employer, one employer who um, actually mandates vaccines for their employers is Fox News, who? according to <laughs> Fox who works there, News. There we know. So Ryan Grimm reported this this morning um, that Fox News has something called a, a Fox passport or something that if you're vaccinated, um, you can. Now, look, you don't have to mandate that every employee gets it. What you can do is say, OK, um, you either have to get vaccinated to come to work in the office or you need like a negative test every day or every week or something like that. So you make it harder to not be vaccinated if you don't want to go the full mandate route. But like, I really think instead of just like counting on fucking mask mandates forever, which aren't as effective as vaccinations, you should start vaccinating people. LA County doesn't even have a requirement for their city employees to be vaccinated, even though San Francisco does right now and they're putting out mask mandates. And one other piece of this too, the other side of that, uh, I feel like the carrot to that is I do think that there are a lot of people who you know, are, if not, they're not, they're skeptical, they're hesitant, maybe they just haven't gotten around to it yet. And that employers encouraging it and employers giving people time off. Huge. Or even cash bonuses. Or bonuses, just incentives at work to get vaccinated and make it part of the culture of your, of your work to get it, I think is uh, another way to kind of encourage it. And the other, the other small thing is, you know, we are now at the place where we're trying to reach people who are hesitant, maybe more likely to be mistrustful of government for a host of different reasons. Uh, And I do think that saying vaccines are safe and effective, vaccines are safe and effective, there is maybe room to start saying something, just like making it a comparison. COVID is far more dangerous than any vaccine. COVID is the risk. The vaccine is far, far less risky. And and make that comparison plain to people. Yeah, I, I do worry, like, you know, you're starting to see very clear studies about how partisan vaccination has become, right? A lot of red states have far lower levels than blue states. You're starting to see sentiment on Twitter and other places. It's basically like, you know what? Screw these people. If they don't get vaccinated, they deserve to get sort of shouting them down, calling people idiots. I think that's very bad. I think we need to approach this conversation with empathy. I think if you, there's a lot of reasons to be scared. There's a lot of bad information online. There's a lot of lack of clarity about how science works, about what an mRNA vaccine is, about how it was developed so quickly, right? Like you could you could ask a lot of reasonable questions. And I think if we shut people down and attack them and call them stupid, it's not going to work, especially when you're talking about people vaccinating their kids, right? Like it's scary. And again, empathy is great. But even if you want to be purely self-interested about it, you know, the longer this is out there and the, and the fewer people that are vaccinated, the higher the chance that a variant comes along that evades the vaccines. Also, like this is a stress on our hospitals, right? Like there are there are hospitals and healthcare workers in places where there's not a lot of vaccinated Americans who are just seeing the ICUs fill up and that not only, you know, wears down our healthcare workers, but that means that there's less capacity in those hospitals for other people who get sick, right? So it is like it is in the interest of all of us for even the most vaccine hesitant person out there to get the shot and we should be doing everything we can to, to convince those people to get a shot or require it. 
or require it. And don't take your uh, cues from Twitter. Twitter is not the place to have this debate. There are actually people that have spent a very long time thinking about how to persuade vaccine-hesitant people to become vaccinated. Listen to them. Yeah. They're, they're, they're often called vaccine whispers. There are groups that have been formed that have specialized in this and looked at this, and we should be looking to them and not the ridiculous political arguments that play out online about, is this punishment? Is this incentives? Is this persuasion? Put that all aside. There are people that know how to do this. All right. When we come back, Tommy and I talked to Senator Brian Schatz about climate, voting rights, tweeting, and more. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. On the pod today, we have the deputy whip for the Senate Democrats. Uh, Welcome back. Senator Brian Schatz, how's it going? It's going fine. Nice to see you both. I I just want to start by saying um, Tommy walked into the office today. He is wearing a button-down shirt, which I haven't seen him in in, in over a year. Uh And it was because he thought you were going to be here in the office. He thought you had a layover in L.A. on your way home to Hawaii. And now he's all dressed up for no good reason. My wife asked me if I was uh, going to court. And I said, (laughs) no, we have a big interview. I like that that's fancy for you. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. This is as fancy as I get. Senator, there was a lot of uh, elastic waists over the last year and a half, so we're we're climbing back. That shirt is like very casual for 90% of my colleagues. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm wearing shorts. Um, All right. So I saw that uh, you spoke to NBC News the other day about the prospects of passing Joe Biden's economic plans and said that you haven't been this optimistic in many, many months. What's gotten into you? Why are you so optimistic? Well, I think it's a couple of things. It's a mood, right? It's um, <clears throat> it's the sense that if Joe Biden's for it, if Chuck Schumer's for it, if if Nancy Pelosi's for it, there is pretty good unity in the Democratic conference that we're going to move forward uh, on on the American Jobs Plan. Um, we're also procedurally kind of in a good spot. We we have plans to 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 move on the so-called bipartisan. Uh, infrastructure package and then followed by the budget resolution, which sort of unlocks um, reconciliation, which we can do in September. So we're like in pretty good shape procedurally, but I think it really more is uh, an intuitive sense that there's a recognition we've got to do this. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of uh, meeting the moment. Um, And that doesn't mean that this uh, bill uh, won't face uh, numerous near-death experiences along the way because it's a big bill and that's what happens and people threaten to kill it all the time and Axios will report trouble for the bill, you know, every <laughs> every uh, 72 hours. Um, but, and uh, we're in a good spot and I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Um, one of the big parts of the bill is obviously going to be like climate, Joe Biden's entire climate agenda or most of the climate agendas in this bill. You chaired... Uh, I think there's some fancy committee on climate uh, a while back. I think it was like a special committee on climate. And I remember you telling Vox about a year ago that you thought that when it came to climate and, and agreeing on climate policy, all the Senate Democrats are united and ready to roll. Do you still feel like that's the case looking at what's going to be in the reconciliation bill around climate? Yeah, two points. Uh, well, three points. First, Vox, not Fox, right? Um, I said uh, Vox. Yeah, yeah okay. did I say Fox? Uh, oh, <laughs> I just couldn't hear it. 
exactly. I know you were right. on Tuck. You were on Tucker's show a year ago. Yeah, I don't remember a climate interview with Fox. Um, uh, first of all, I, I think that uh, my experience uh, in Hawaii when we were starting the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative uh, in 1999, there were lots of kind of stupid arguments in, in retrospect between people who cared about wind or people who cared about solar or people who cared about conservation. And what we realized is that the best policy pathway and the best political pathway are to enact all of the uh, various measures to address the climate because the size of the problem and the size of the opportunity is so massive that we really have to throw everything we've got at it. And that sort of unlocks a, a, a political universe where we don't really have to fight with each other over very much. Um, so we're the top line number that was authorized or not authorized that, that has been contemplated um, of 3.5 trillion provides enough room for us to do uh, not just meaningful stuff on climate, but 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 the kind of climate action that will um, meet the moment, understanding that it's super rare for us to have the trifecta. Um, but look, um, you know, we're a diverse caucus and people are going to have hives about various pieces of the bill and we got to work that out. So I don't want to I don't want to underestimate the challenge in front of us. But I think there's a recognition that the Democratic caucus has to deliver on climate and not for some sort of obscure political reason because it's going to win us the midterms, but because the planet is on fire and everybody gets that. And the collective determination is giving me a ton of hope. Well, you know, I'm glad you talked about the scale of the problem in the hives because, you know, you work in an institution that is in part designed to tell the country, the House of Representatives to like s slow to roll a little bit. Right. I mean, the cliche, the very modern metaphor you always hear is that the Senate is the cooling saucer. But we live on a rapidly warming planet uh, with a bunch of people that move at Twitter speed. And that can create some friction right between lawmakers and, and people like you who are trying to work the process as fast as you can. And then activists like us who sit around and tweet, which is obviously much more important. So what is your message to people like me and John? Stop who tweeting. Are filled, thank you. Do you find our tweets annoying? <laughs> you first. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, John. We've come, we've come to an impasse. Um, what's your what's your message to activists who are you know filled with existential climate dread and you know want to figure out a way to sort of push lawmakers to meet the moment, move faster, et cetera? Like, what, what should they? What do they need to know? So, first of all, don't despair. And the reason that I say don't despair is not sort of just to be reassuring, but to we have to remind ourselves that our opponents. Um, thrive on our despairing. They want us to feel despondent. They want us to feel um, like it can't be done. Uh, and so momentum begets momentum in the political context. And so we should turn our righteous outrage into action. Um, but those actions should be equal to the moment, which is to say it is not about finding some line in the sand and like whipping Democratic members about whether they're for a specific provision in the climate bill. Because the danger there is what I, what I would call like the Keystone thing, which was an important fight and I was opposed to the Keystone pipeline. But in the end, that became like the measure of whether or not we were making progress on climate or not. And look, Keystone's dead and the climate is still a huge challenge. So you can use individual provisions in this bill as a rallying point, but don't underestimate the importance of a package of provisions that actually add up to 1.5 degrees uh, uh, centigrade. So the point being, you, we're not negotiating with each other, 
We're not even negotiating with Republicans. It's physics that we're contending with. And so, you know, not to get, you know, too wonky here, but the, the, my test, you know, I get asked almost daily, well, what is the one thing you need in the bill? Is it your carbon fee bill? Is it a clean electricity standard? Is it electrification of transportation? First of all, I say it's all of it. But second of all, the rather maybe unsatisfying answer for someone who wants a pithy quote is the truth is I'm going to take all of these things and I'm going to send them to Columbia University, Resources for the Future, MIT, and the federal government. And they have like modeling shops, literally, who do these statistical models and they say and they'll take all the provisions from any proposal and within three or four days they'll spit out, okay, that'll get you X number of degrees of warming. That's mm-hmm. my test. I don't care. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say I don't care, but my primary concern is not satisfying any individual constituency. My primary concern is satisfying my daughter who's 13 who's saying, you better do something on climate. You're going to fly back and forth 50 times a year. That's the reason you're in the United States Senate. And that's how we have to look at this, which is a, a citizen's uh, youth climate core is great. My you know, bike lane uh, uh, electric bike provision is great. I love my um, a carbon fee bill. I love the environmental justice provisions, but it all has to add up to actually us solving it rather than just uh, having something to rally around. I've never seen road rage like John Favreau with a, a biker out of a bike lane in Washington, D.C. It's incredible. It was a D.C. thing. In L.A., you don't see as many bikers. No. Well, you they took were all them over out. the road. They acted like they were drivers. Anyway, that's my that's another issue for me. I'm so, Are you anti-bike, bike, John? Don't tweet at me about biking. I support biking. I have a bike now. I do you? I drove. Yeah, I got it for my birthday last year when there was oh, nowhere to yeah, go yeah, in the yeah. pandemic. Are you, are you I, like just theoretically for biking as public policy, but you're actually a jerk to bikers? No, no. I, well, now everyone's going to think I am. I used to be. I've gotten better. Is, I've gotten are, better. are you a, a bimby or what is a biking? <laughs> what is it? I don't know. Go ahead. You said the word despair and the image in my head was the uh, houseboat that Joe Manchin lives on. <laughs> what what do you know about what he's willing to support in terms of climate policy? Just based on I don't want you to try to like divulge conversations you've had with him recently, but like just based on his past past conversations, you know, past issues that he's been on either side of. Like he said last week, he, he has some concerns. He said this week that he has some concerns in the at the language. You know, he said you cannot be moving towards eliminating fossil fuels. That doesn't seem great. But like, I know you've obviously talked to him for a while. What, what do you think he's willing to support? Well, I mean, we've had multiple conversations. And like you said, I, I, I wouldn't divulge at least his side of the conversation. But but let me give you, you know, my perspective. You know, when I when I was um, point person in Hawaii on the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative, right? Like the business community is sitting there going, uh, wait a second, we have the Pacific Command and we have Waikiki and we need, uh, uh, you know, firm, reliable power. And I said, yeah, of course we do. We're just going to move the percentage of our portfolio up as aggressively as possible. And in the meantime, yeah, we're going to be lighting um, LSFO, low sulfur fuel oil, on fire to create electrons. That's a stupid thing to do. But I'm not a I'm not a maniac. I don't want to stop that instantaneously and have nobody be able to turn their lights on. And so the sort of gap between um, someone like me and someone like Joe Manchin as a practical matter is not as wide as it appears, because all he's saying is, hey, for at least some number of years, we're still going to be lighting um, things on fire to create electrons. And what he is hearing is 
that basically all of these things will be instantaneously banned. And I think even the most aggressive climate activists understand that we're still going to need to put gasoline in our cars. Um, and for until we site and permit and construct and plug into the grid all of this renewable energy, um, we're not going to take away electricity from people. And so I think there's a fair amount of room to move here. I don't want to like overstate my optimism as it relates to conversations I've had with Joe, but I would just say that um, he's moved a lot. And I think he understands that those of us who have like serious plans as it relates to clean energy understand that um, both politically and morally, we can't like de-electrify the United States of America, right? The idea is to put more and more things on the electric grid and then put more of that electric grid on renewable energy resources as aggressively as practicable. But the idea is not to turn our society into like 150 years ago where nothing works anymore. And I do think that the utility companies of old and the oil companies of old really um, put the fear of God in a lot of people that that's actually where we wanted to land. And like, if we had our druthers, that we would instantaneously just literally ban all fossil fuel generation and, and transmission and distribution. And look, I think we should get rid of it as quickly as we can, but as quickly as we can is a matter of siting and, um, and permitting and then getting it onto the grid, which, which is gonna be decades. Um, Senator, you, uh, Congress passed into law a child tax credit that some experts say will cut child poverty in half. I believe those checks are going out to families this week. My question is, do you regret not incorporating like some sort of epic Trump burn in the bill text so that it would get covered? Maybe something about Ivanka versus Jared, just sort of get it in Politico. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, I think your point, I think your point, Tommy, is that mm -hmm. We're crappy at um, capturing the imagination of the Beltway Press, and no. um, and and they're crappy at not picking up what you're putting down. Well, fair That's enough. Fair. And, but I also and think, I think it's a little more about their them reporting on what's exciting versus what's important would be really more the core. Yeah, of my or what's team. new, right? They just even the excellent reporters have a bias towards newness that drives mm -hmm. me up a damn wall. But I will tell you that this thing is so popular and so helpful to uh, millions and millions of families that um, it's not about capturing a news cycle. It's about being relentless uh, uh, about the child tax credit. So many families are going to get so much help from the federal government um, for the foreseeable future because of something that we did that people didn't even know we were doing it when it happened. So we've got to, in the American Jobs Plan, we've got to extend this. And then, frankly, we've got to run on it. Um, we've got to make sure that everybody understands um, what we've done. Yeah. No, I, I ask that in jest because it's such a big deal. It's so monumental. It's so important. And there's the opportunity to extend it forever and just fundamentally change the way the United States government supports families in this country. And then John and Dan were talking about some focus groups on Thursday where Trump voters said, wow, Joe Biden could do that. He already had done it. Uh, that would make me really reconsider who I who I voted for in the next election. So it's politically popular, as you said. Have you uh, have you talked to the White House about your idea of calling it Biden Bucks? Oh, yeah. I have, and they're sort of like, we'll take you know, we're the messaging people over here. We'll take that under advisement. <laughs> what about shots in arms? S C H A T Z in arms. Biden Bucks in pockets. Shots in arms. Biden Bucks in pockets. <laughs> I like it. We we I can like workshop it. something. Anything that gives me credit for something I didn't do, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Again, I won't ask you to divulge details, but have you had any recent conversations with your colleagues 
that have made you optimistic on passing federal voting rights legislation? Not particularly. Yeah, um, bummer. And, and so <laughs> I, I think there's kind of two, two ways to look at this. First of all, um, uh, you know, I want to go back to the, the thing I said about despair. This one in particular, um, the language has gotten so apocalyptic and for very understandable reasons, because the threat is very real, um, that it does run the risk of having the impact that Trump did on his voters in Georgia. That if yeah, people feel like that. they cannot win because the system is actually rigged um, uh, structurally, then they will not turn out. So we've got to keep two thing, two sort of things in tension in our own minds and coming out of our own mouths. One, one is that th- this is creeping authoritarianism, and it is the 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 um, uh, the offspring of the big lie, right? And that you can draw a straight line from the big lie to January 6th to all this voter suppression. And so we have to have that sense of urgency about passing legislation at the state and the federal level. We have to have a sense of urgency about uh, Attorney General Garland um, uh, and and his deputies who are extraordinary. Um, I'm doing everything they can to enforce um, the law and the constitution. And and I'm not suggesting that this is not as bad as it seems. I am saying, however, that um, if we build up to the point where the only solution is to yell at my colleagues who have basically promised not to break the filibuster and just assume that if, you, if, you're, if you're a senator from Arizona, you're a senator from West Virginia, that you can be pressured into flipping on this. I think that's just like tactically not smart, right? Because... I take them at their word. They don't want to break the filibuster. Now, are there ways to modify the filibuster to make it work better? Sure. Should we keep the pressure up? Absolutely. But again, um, authoritarian regimes, and Tommy, you know this uh, better than I do, but I've been studying a ton about this. They really do thrive on this sense of the inevitability of the uh, of 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 them winning right of mm-hmm. a minority of people ruling the majority of people and the majority of people feeling absolutely powerless and yep. so yes we should fight for the statutory um, and constitutional provisions that that um, protect the sacred right to vote um, but we no matter what happens no matter what happens with the filibuster, with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, with H.R. 1, we have to keep fighting, 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 because everybody, all of our, I was thinking about this, all of our predecessors, whether it was, you know, in the 60s and 70s, um, or whether it was the Civil War, or whether it was World War II, they've faced these existential threats. And I very much doubt that the leaders of the movements that prevailed said, oh, we are well and truly right? (laughs) And there's so much of that stuff on Twitter privately, of, of, yeah. of people who sort of present themselves as leader of, leaders of a movement. And what a thing to say, right? What a thing to say. If we don't do this, it's over, right? And it's never over. And so I, I don't want to present to you good news that I don't have on voting rights in the legislative context. But I just want to say, um, don't despair because... Hope is a decision. Hope is a muscle. And we've got to keep exercising it. Even if we're not even sure what the pathway is forward, um, we know for sure that if we say, oh, we are well and truly f***ed and it's October of an odd numbered year, um, then we are well and truly f***ed. 
I, to, to, I, I to really channel. wish that I hadn't sworn so much on your pod. Can you bleep them <laughs> we out? We can bleep it. Yeah, no, it's that'll be more fun. Yeah, it'll sound cool bleep. if we bleep it. it. To channel the the activists, what they would say, I think, is like, okay, we'll be there and we'll fight if we know that this is lost in the end, right? Like, we'll still be there, and we, if but we want to see every Democrat from Joe Biden to every Democratic senator trying everything and fighting as hard as possible. So, you know, you see this story yesterday that Manchin meets with the Texas Democrats. They come out of the meeting. It seems a little hopeful. They say, all right, we believe that Joe Manchin wants to protect voting rights. He's going to he wants to do a much narrower bill, put it on the floor, get everyone there. And then they ask him about the filibuster. He's like, I don't want to talk about the filibuster. Forget about the filibuster. But could you see a scenario where you get sort of a pared down bill, a spare bill, you put it on the floor and then you're trying some of those, forget getting rid of the filibuster because I'm with you. Manchin and Cinema have said it a million times. I think we should take them at their word. But you try some of these filibuster reforms. You try to say, all right, 41 Republican senators have to be on the floor the entire time. Or maybe there's a carve out for voting rights legislation. What do you think about the likelihood of some of those reforms being tried over the next couple of months? I think the likelihood of them being tried is pretty high. And I think we should. Okay. Because I think that there's nothing that, that for instance, Kirsten said um, that prevents the filibuster rules from being changed, right? Because there's lots of like arcane details, like, you yeah. know, you guys know this stuff, but like we need 60 votes just to proceed to a bill, not to vote for it, but just to get on it. And yeah. so there, and the motion to proceed used to be like the equivalent of the, like at the end of every Senate day, it's like, hey, we're gonna convene at 10 a.m. and these committees are gonna meet and blah, blah, blah. And technically you could require a roll call vote for every single one of those, like basically ministerial little things that we do. (laughs) It's called a wrap up script every night. And it's like, here's what's gonna happen tomorrow. Technically, any member could be like, I object, we're gonna vote on all this stuff. The committees can't meet till noon. Like the Senate rules as they exist are completely untenable. And the only way we, we function on a day-to-day basis is every night we get a unanimous consent, which means everybody doesn't object. And then we have like all this functional stuff. The Foreign Relations Committee is going to meet at 10 and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so um, the motion to proceed, for instance, used to be never voted on. We just got onto a bill and then some jerk. Actually, I don't know if it was a jerk because I don't I don't know who it was in history. I mean, odds are. Yeah. Um, fair enough. Um, um, demanded <laughs> that we vote on that. And so now just to proceed to a bill requires 60 votes. So there are a bunch of reforms that could improve the process and still allow Joe and and Kirsten and others to stand on. I didn't eliminate the filibuster. In fact, I saved the filibuster by making it work better. Right. Um, Speaking of untenable, is it weird to work in a building with people who just don't seem to care that the Capitol was stormed by a, a fascist mob? It's super weird. Um, I mean, I just like your, your tweets on this of like, if we can't come together to create a bipartisan commission to study this horrific event in our history, that I think is is the best argument against the filibuster. I found that very compelling. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard. I mean, I, I, it's it's hard that just as a human, like I think anyone who's in the Senate and can't compartmentalize, you know, just at the human level and can't like deal with someone with whom you disagree pretty strongly or even dislike pretty strongly, then mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be very effective in the Senate because the deal right. is you kind of have to just be able to 
handle this 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 kind of level of combat and situational partnerships because otherwise you're just going to sit there in a corner and only work with the people with whom you agree which which are never going to add up to even 50 but let alone 60 and so yeah you got to compartmentalize but compartmentalizing to the extent that you're trying to work with someone who ignores that the capital was under siege and to me, the, 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 the physical siege of the Capitol was a, was a manifestation of an even bigger problem, which was they tried to overturn democracy. And so, yep. sorry for, for, for going off on a bit of a tangent, but I think this is kind of important. What I worry about more than a siege on the Capitol, again, uh, is a nonviolent siege on democracy itself, an overturning of the electoral college vote mm-hmm. um, with without a shot being fired, without a thug, you know, breaking through a window, because I think it's it's almost a certainty that the Capitol will be extremely safe the next time there's an electoral count. Right. And so the the crime against the country was manifested as a physical siege on the Capitol. But what I worry about is now we're going to say, okay, we're going to have a barrier around the Capitol. Um, We're going to have better security protocols. And it's like, Okay, well, that's great. But what happens if the Congress just comes in and flips the goddamn presidential vote because they've all been um, um, overtaken by Donald Trump's, you know, um, uh, uh, base? And so I think we have to worry about both things, right? The physical security of the Capitol, but also the Electoral Count Act and the extent to which there were some individual, I don't even call them brave, but there were some individual election administrators who did the right thing. I don't think it's yep. that brave to like abide by the results of an election. I don't think we should count that as an act of courage. But there were individual decisions that were the right ones throughout the country uh, on both sides of the aisle. And I think we just have to, I mean, I, I, one thing I'd direct your, your listeners' attention to is secretaries of state and county clerks to the extent that mm-hmm. they're elected. There's some bananas people running for that with Trump's endorsement. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're bad. Almost bad explicitly um, desiring to overturn the election next time. So I worry about all that. Can I ask you a little inside baseball question here, which is about the Senate parliamentarian? Oh, sure. The last time we, we cared about the Senate parliamentarian was when this individual was uh, removing a minimum wage increase from the COVID relief bill. Now there's talk that the big infrastructure bill that you guys are working on could include language that could create a pathway to citizenship for certain uh, undocumented groups like the Dreamers, um, uh, farm workers living in the US, uh, potentially uh, essential workers who are from the pandemic. So that would be a monumental step forward on immigration reform. But it seems like once again, this massive bill, this this massive decision rests in the hands of the parliamentarian. So I guess two part question, how is that the process one and two, what do you think the, the hope is here that these immigration provisions could could stay in the bill? Let me take the first one, uh, the last one first. Uh, I th- I'm reasonably hopeful about it. Um, oh, but same. as it relates to the parliamentarian, I, I guess I would just say that we ought to be careful not to make this like her fault. This is our no, fault. No, no, no. Yeah. In the in the Senate, that we have um, devolved or delegated our authority over lawmaking to an unelected person who's who's interpreting the law or the our own internal rules best we can. It is within our authority to overrule the par- parliamentarian who is not an elected official. She's trying her best. She's on the level. Um, of course, it's our fault 
right? And so, um, w- w- of course, I want everything possible to fit through this reconciliation aperture, right? Um, but if it doesn't, I think we should overrule her because these rules are a creature of us. And it's, it's about, you know, rules in service uh, of the institution rather than an institution in service of its own rules. Do you think that uh, the clean energy standard could pass through the parliamentary? The parliamentarian will sign off on that. And if not, like, are there alternative plans for including some kind of carbon pricing in the climate provisions uh, for reconciliation? Um, I don't want to. Pred- I don't want to. I really don't want to predict what what um, what the parliamentarian is going to do. Um, it's highly technical, and right. like they, you know you get professional staff who spend like six hours with her making the case. And so who knows how all that's going to go. But I would just say um, that I believe a carbon fee still has to be on the table. Um, and the bill that uh, Senator Whitehouse and I and Martin Heinrich and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and others have, have introduced um, is a progressive carbon fee. And I think that one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is I spent a ton of time with environmental justice leaders who had real reservations about a carbon fee. But frankly, a lot of the reservations were based on like a sort of Exxon sponsored organization that wants a carbon fee so they can just kind of like move on from this. And they wanted every single dollar of revenue to be remitted. They want it to be revenue neutral, which means all the money gets remitted back to the ratepayer and the taxpayer. And our model is totally different. Our model generates revenue for environmental justice, um, for um, members of labor unions who are going to be dislocated, whether or not we pass a carbon fee. Uh, yeah. Coal is not going to last uh, for another several decades. So, so our carbon fee is progressive. And we spent a lot of time listening, but also explaining um, that not every carbon fee is sort of written by corporations. Ours is written with them in mind. Um, Senator, I saw in in preparing for this interview today that you were the Hawaii state spokesman for the Obama campaign in 2008. I was the Iowa campaign spokesman. John was a a speechwriter. Pretty much the same job. Yeah. Well, now you're a U.S. senator and we read underwear ads for a living. Is there a lesson there about life choices (laughs) in your opinion? Well, I just want to say someone who was running against me um, had a pretty good burn about, you know, I was the Obama for Hawaii guy. And they were like, oh, yeah, you led the... Co- a committee to 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 make sure the sun comes up tomorrow morning. So it was <laughs> it was not the most difficult campaign. It was a lot of fun and we did a lot of organizing. But our challenge was, oh my god, we got too many volunteers. There's we're running out of ballots. Like we got to go guys to Kinko's. Mopped up though. What's you got that? like seventy percent, right? You mopped up. We did great. We did great. Um, but I, I can't say it was because of me. I, I do remember a buddy of mine calling and saying, "Did I just vote for president on a post-it note?" I said, "I'm pretty sure you did." <laughs> <laughs> um, so good. I didn't know this about you that you were the until Tommy brought it up this morning that you were the Obama spokesperson back then. That's we amazing. we called Chicago to try to get like some resources, like some merch, whatever, and they told us to live off the land. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a bluff line. I could hear bluff saying that. Oh yeah. my god. Um, the, the other thing you know that we love is that you and Senator uh, Chris Murphy, the Murph dog, the Murfster, you guys have this special fundraising thing going on Twitter. Do other senators get mad when you only QT him? Like, how, how does that go over in the cloakroom? Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. We all love. Is, any, is anyone trying to get into your click? Is that is it? I see. <laughs> I see Cory Booker. He's, he's thirsty. Michael Bennett seems mentions. a little thirsty. Yeah, Bennett. Yep. Cory Cory Booker is um, is not that on Twitter anymore. I think he's just decided it was 
it was it was not a good use of his time. Yeah. Um, no, in I fact, I gotta yeah. I gotta send him tweets and say, hey, look, I tweeted at you because he's not. Uh, <laughs> it's a sad message. Capital V, uh, very online. Well, but like you know, we 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 joke about this because we're obnoxious people but like you know we can talk to you and you can talk about mit models on climate change and then i look at your twitter feed and when the gulf of mexico is on fire you tweeted but can we afford climate action but you did it in the spongebob square pants uh alternating caps font and i think that's <laughs> it, it is what makes you different i mean there's this generational difference in terms of how you communicate and how you fundraise that i think our our to senators look at what you're doing and think oh Maybe I wouldn't have to run to some lobbying shop on K Street to raise money if I was a little more savvy with some of this online fundraising. With their well, I don't know about the fundraising piece, but I, I do think more and more members are, are running their own Twitter, uh, you know, and it's getting more interesting because sort of one of the things that I've said and, and Corey in particular has said to the whole caucus is if you're prepared to talk to somebody, you know, while you're walking onto the Senate floor on the fly, then you should be prepared to do your own tweets, right? That's because a, that's very um, good. Yeah, I think the fear, right, is that you're going to tweet something um, that you didn't mean to say, but it's uh, you've got more control over what you write and then press send um, than than like how you respond to like someone from roll call sticking a microphone in your mouth um, mm-hmm. on your way to the Senate floor off of a red eye flight. And so there's a bunch yeah. of members who are getting a little more comfortable in, in the medium, and then a bunch of communication staffers who are. Um, getting gray hair. <laughs> so nervous. Yeah. I wouldn't, uh, Obama probably wouldn't have tweeted. Oh, but no, the Obama's probably would have, would have been that his tweets would have been like, he's like, look, here's my 140 characters and now I need a 25 part yeah, thread. That would have gotten him. No, it would have trouble. been a link to a medium post, right? It would <laughs> <laughs> Look what I have said. Link to Medium Post, eleven minute read. Remember when he like dropped off a, a blog on your desk for the Daily Coast yeah, about, like about John Roberts' words. confirmation? It was like a was, yeah, he wanted to be a Daily Coast blogger. Back yeah. in hey, I got a question for you about 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 your president. Um, is he online with like lurker accounts? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. Well, so he was online with, to play words with friends. Mm-hmm. That was a thing. Real security. Uh, potential violation threat issue there. Wouldn't I, I he, bet he just a, smash a, a at word, words with friends? Wouldn't he just kill everybody? He would just crush Reggie. Yeah, I think they just played with him to make him feel good. Um, I think that when he... Pete Souza. He had his iPad and he could read the news on his iPad. He wasn't like on Twitter, at least back when... No, I'm talking about now. Like, does That's he... what I'm wondering. Yeah. I think he is more... I think he is like informed in a way that you'd be like, well, how did you know that if you haven't been scrolling around? But I could also... So he does like... He goes to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. He reads like the top read, most shared stories. He's kind of gets it that way. I'm sure, he's at the Atlantic, right? All the very Barack Obama type places uh, that he gets his news from. He's also disciplined enough to go on Twitter for 11 seconds, realize it's low calorie garbage and walk away. Unlike us. Yeah, like that's him. what I would imagine. He's like, I give I give it 12 minutes a day and I scan and see if there's anything I need to know. And then I move on to more long form stuff where it's like, uh, I keep scrolling and going like I should probably I should probably read something that's longer than than a tweet. Oh, but what about this thing? Oh, but what about this thing? And so yeah. it's only on the airplane that I can do the long form stuff. Yeah, no, I'm the worst because I give my wife grief if she's on TikTok too much. And I'm like, you're on Twitter all day long. And it's just a chat room for nerds. It's really bad when you're 
even reading like a, a story in the post or the times and you're like checking Twitter in the middle of reading the story. That's when I'm like, all right, my my attention span is now nothing. And this is just garbage what I'm doing to myself. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask another dumb question? Is the house is the congressional gym nice? Why do members love and I were talking about this the other day? There's so many gyms you could go to in Washington, D.C. Why does everybody end up back at the House and Senate gym? So I don't know about the house gym. I heard it's fancy. My um, uh, my good friend and, and the former governor, Neil Abercrombie, was the chairman of the subcommittee on the gym. Come on. <laughs> That's and, a thing. And and he said he told me that, um, you know, it made him very popular with members. And he was the first person to make sure that the women's and the men's side were equally resourced, which was a big deal. I'm not a I don't exercise indoors for the most part. So I don't go to the the, the Senate gym. Um, I've been inside of it. It's small and lovely. Hmm. That's all I can tell you. Well, on that note, I think we should wrap it up. I don't know. The first time I see Steve King naked, I'm out of there. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. Now I know anyone who runs for Congress, your highest aspiration should be to uh, chair the subcommittee for the gym. That's pretty sweet. That's that's where it's Big shoes to fill. (laughs) Uh, Senator Schatz, thank you so much for coming by as always. Next time you're in town on a layover in LA, please come by the office so that Tommy can dress up for a reason. I'll dress down, I guess. I will do. We'll figure out what we're all wearing and match it all up. Okay, thank you. Perfect. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Senator. Thanks. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. All right, let's, before we go, take some questions from listeners today. Haven't done that in a while. Questions. Fake name McGee asks... (laughs) I love that. I love that Twitter handle. Um, what do you think Joe Biden's favorite Olivia Rodrigo song is and why is it good for you? Uh, but seriously, is there any crossover between unvaccinated and Olivia Rodrigo? Anyone want to take a shot at either of those? I don't get I don't, the last part. I haven't looked at her meaning cross like, tabs. I don't, meaning, I like, like, was it, meaning like, was it worth having Olivia Rodrigo? Do we? Did, I guess oh, this that, person is saying, yes. do we really think that there's oh, a lot God, of unvaccinated yeah. people who listen to Olivia Rodrigo and then Olivia Rodrigo and then would be persuaded? Olivia right. Rodrigo is the first person to have been able to kind of obliterate uh, right wing misinformation from some of the top spouts on Facebook. It actually was competitive. Her her post and Biden's post on Facebook about the visit uh, broke into the top ten. You saw a bunch of DC reporters being like. Olivia, who? Get me some Springsteen. They're all like trapped in the 80s. But yes, she's wildly popular. Uh, Again, my sources in the White House uh, tell me that Biden loves her ballads, uh, but is also into the more like pop punk stuff. So I think like good for you, uh, enough for you. Anything with a U in it, Biden's super into it. I think that Biden's uh, favorite song is One Step Forward and Three Steps Back because that's how he views governing. Oh, God. Yeah, that was my... my I just want to say that several people have accused me of being the author of a certain sentence from 2016. It's spurious, but I will say, come 2022, we'll have to Olivia Rodrigo to the polls. That is, and now we know that it was you, that Pokemon go to the polls. All right, uh, Rob asks, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Flight. 
Time travel? Time travel is number one for me. Reducing the one. warming of the planet by two degrees Celsius. I, I, oh, isn't that good of you? It really depends on the time travel rules that we're talking <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ability to carbon. Oh, I, number, I three, carbon the, number three, the ability to virtue signal. My support. Yeah, my. Stomach <laughs> <laughs> super power. <laughs> Uh, oh man, that's I very did that funny. One for you too, just that's to very funny. My superpower is carbon sequestration. Uh, the problem with time travel as a superpower is it really depends on the rules of your universe. Oh, are we talking no. about rafts oh, moving no, down a river, a la the Tomorrow War? Uh, there are paradoxes. I prefer the primer version of time travel, but therefore it really, you know, I think it raises more questions than it answers. I also think sometimes we underestimate just how much people being able to fly would transform our society. Gravity is a lot of what we rely on for security. Uh, fences, for example. Um, so That would reduce carbon footprint right there, people yeah. flying. Um, all right, Jason asks, what's the new show we should be watching? Here's my top five, starting with number five. Uh, Too Hot to Handle, season two on Netflix. Amazing. Trash. Watch it. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Can Fuck Himself on AMC. Great new show on AMC. Here you go. <laughs> I, I have a to-do list that's just sort of running. And at some point in the middle of it, it just says, Kevin can fuck himself. And I had no idea if that was a weird note I accidentally <laughs> wrote. Telling, okay, <laughs> thank you. Telling you to watch that, that really did just like close a loop in my brain. Um, Dave on Hulu, season two. Very funny. Fantastic. Very weird season. Very weird season, but very well done, I think. Uh, the Good Fight on Paramount+. Plus. I love The Good Fight. It's very, very good. This is one of the best seasons yet. And number one, White Lotus on HBO is Fantastic. I can't believe it's so funny because all I was going to say is I would I'll recommend White Lotus the second something on that show fucking happens. I love Mike White. I actually have been enjoying watching it, but I need something to go down. I don't down even need here. anything. I think it's the music so, is cool. It's I funny. Watched, it's smart. It's so good. I watched the first episode last night. I really like the mean teen characters. I feel like there's a lot of potential there. <laughs> episode two is even better with the mean teen characters. Okay. I do love life. the mean They're teens. They're hilarious. Me, the second episode terrifying. is even better than the first, I think. If you want to know if, if Olivia Rodrigo could talk people and stuff, those two could convince literally anyone to get vaccinated just by mocking them. <laughs> uh, there's a follow-up on this question. Uh, Peps asks, is Tommy to blame for the inexplicable and ongoing success of Emily in Paris? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's a he's a cultural <sighs> influencer and, and he loves the show and he's been promoting it basically nonstop. I'm wondering if you have some points on the back end. <laughs> uh, get some, get Je m'appelle Tommy. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Um, I like Loki a lot. I haven't, what's it about? It's about Loki. It's about uh, Tom Hiddleston. He's like Loki. Uh, he's, cool. uh, you know, he's uh, he's a trickster, um, and uh, he gets himself in some uh, hot water, and uh, you gotta take. It's hard to explain. People okay. should watch Loki. Just it's it enjoyable. I love yeah. Tom Hiddleston though. Tom Hiddleston in anything. The Night Manager. Yes. Great show. Love the also, Night Manager. Also, hey, listen. I've been very critical of my friends over there at the uh, Walt Disney Corporation. We have a why don't mess with them. We have a main <laughs> character. We have doing? a main character. <laughs> we love you, Bob. He is LGBT. <laughs> he is bisexual, uh, and I appreciate it. Now, has he acted upon that in any way? Of course not. But we're, we're moving forward. All right, we're moving forward. Tom Hiddleston, bisexual, A plus. And the filibuster asks, what's your favorite movie that clearly set up a sequel you wanted to see, which was never made? And does the lack of said sequel diminish the overall greatness of that movie? I don't have one, but I know both of you do. I'm going to say I'm going to say World War Z. I wanted more World War Z. World War Z is both a movie that should have had a sequel and a great example of successful reshoots. So hmm. often reshoots signal that you're going to get a disaster. World War Z. I wanted more of it. Someone told me the craziest reshoot, which was, I think, Back to the Future initially didn't star Michael J. Fox. Oh, yeah. It was uh, Eric Stoltz. Oh, and wow. Now, here's the craziest part yeah. about that. 
this is the saddest thing. They decided to change to Michael J. Fox, but they had to finish a few days of shooting. And so they were still shooting with Eric Stoltz and they would just be like, don't worry so much about his side. Just just get everything we need from the other side. Oh, that's so <laughs> Poor Eric Stoltz. Poor Eric Stoltz. Eric, you nailed it on the first take. Next. Uh, I, I think you're wrong, though, on your on your sequel. Um, the Passion of the Christ. Right. <laughs> Name a more anticipated sequel than Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Name have, it. Have you heard the good news? That's the trailer. That's the tagline for Passion of the Christ, too. Castaway 2. <laughs> Someone gets Tom Hanks to take that trip to Tahiti he's always wanted. It's just, it's just Wilson on an island. Yeah, Shawshank 2. <laughs> Recidivism you, this problem. Is, this is amazing. I don't know. I like that you put some thought into this. Thank Tommy. you. Pretty good. Pretty uh, good. Jenny asks, on a recent Love or Leave It, Love It rated The Departed as a Scorsese B+. What Scorsese movies would you rate as an A? And I want to be clear. When I say that something is a Scorsese B+, Scorsese. I consider The Departed. Scorsese, sorry. I'm a, uh, Scorsese. <laughs> I consider it a Scorsese. A Scorsese B+, is better than what most directors will ever achieve. Okay. I mean that with nothing but love and admiration for Marty. Uh, but uh, I love, obviously, Goodfellas. Obviously, Casino. Now, I I occasionally, I, ref- I won't say it that I put Casino above Goodfellas. I do believe that's blasphemous, but I love Casino. I do and too. I, but I love Goodfellas, and I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to even make that claim. I would do Goodfellas, The Departed, uh, Casino. Uh, but also, uh, The King of Comedy is awesome. It also is the Joker movie. Uh, people should go back and watch the King of Comedy before they watch the uh, Joaquin Phoenix Joker. Um, you know, I love the, I love the, the Scorsese oeuvre, um, all the way back to Mean Streets, but... Um, End of thought. End of thought. Uh, Alex asked me, on average, how many tweets do you receive that are clearly intended for the other John Favreau? I would say about two or three per day. No joke. Hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. And you get funny emails. And I also, and I always know when, um, I know when you know he's doing something big because I get a lot of congratulations. I get a lot of congratulations. Uh, I guess he was nominated for an Emmy for Mandalorian. I, got a, the, I think people tweeted out that uh, my Twitter handle was nominated for an Emmy. I think it's funny when people uh, reply to John Lovitz and be like, "How are you dating Ronan Farrow? What's the, <laughs> how's that relationship work?" <laughs> John, can we tell the story about how you once got copied on uh, notes on the Mandalorian well yep. before it was out? And I offered my notes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, an executive uh, sent a sent an email to to me and to the is the, <laughs> such <laughs> massive error. Spoiler notes <laughs> for the Mandalorian to our John Favreau. And when uh, what do we 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 workshop something funny for you to respond? Yeah, you, I just, you're like I agree with most of these, but <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I gave a big butt, uh, and then I just looped in the other John Favreau, whose email I have because it happens a lot more, especially since I've moved out to LA. Um, Justina asks, have you reached out to Taylor Swift for an interview on the pod? Would make the perfect birthday gift for Emily. Uh, this is us reaching out. Anyone who can who can get in contact with yeah, Taylor Swift, her? let We've her know we would treaties. love to have her on the pod. I also I think she could do some great work on convincing people to get vaccinated, speaking of, yeah. of role models who do that. There's a lot of bullshit going down in Tennessee. They're trying to like ban uh, you know, vaccination requirements in, in schools or even outreach to for kids, kids to yeah. kids about vaccination. About their second That's dose. Taylor's home state. She could do a lot of good work there. Come on the pod. Come on, Taylor. Come on, Taylor. On Come pod. on, Taylor. I uh, should I will I'll follow Jack Antonoff. I believe he's um, yeah doing a lot of work with her lately. Maybe we can get him. Yeah, helped write folklore. I like with the her. bleachers a lot. Love the bleachers. I put Ronan. Love on Jack Antonoff. Does he have a contact? Come on. I mean, it's it's are you kidding. He can tell you, who does he? Who do you need to talk to? He'll get you. We got we. I haven't. We haven't thought of this though. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Let's Make it this. happen, man. Uh, final question. Favorite cocktail, everyone. Mm. Never asked this one for you guys. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm such a creature of habit. 
I'm an you know? old, I'm an old fashioned guy. Yeah, those are great. So tried and true. Something Nothing gin fancy, in the just, summer is really. I nice. love. I'm uh, a gin person. I read once that George Burns, uh, the ancient comedian, used to have a steak and a martini after he did comedy. When I read that as a kid, that like stuck with me. So I became someone who ordered martinis at first as a kind of uh, pretentious performance, but then mm-hmm. I grew to like them. But I do like a classic gin martini that has like a proper amount of vermouth. A lot of people order. Uh, like kind of dirty vodka martinis or extra dry martinis. And really what they're getting is like, I don't know, pickle juice and a shot of vodka. And it's like, what what, what kind of life is this? You you are not drunk often, but every time I've seen you drunk, it's because you've been drinking martinis. Yeah. I, yeah. I take my cocktail cues from Ken Burns and it's usually just moonshine in an old bottle. <laughs> I know. A, dig out of a river. <laughs> I know. A, I know. A, so olives make it a martini. Cocktail onions make it a gimlet. What does Oxycontin do to it? <laughs> Jesus Christ. What is that called? All right. On that note, thanks to Brian Schatz for joining this program today. Thank you for that. Um, and um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to you later this week, everyone. Take care. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Nar Melkonian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.